Well, as of late, I've been uh, kind of drawn, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes purposefully, to some serious introspection and spiritual reflection, and along with assessing my own personal walk with Christ, I've also done some thinking about our priorities as a church of Jesus Christ. And I'm reminded of a penetrating truth reflected in the words of a famed poet, Carl Sandburg, whom you've heard me quote before, but it just keeps coming to mind that there is an eagle in me that wants to soar, and there is a hippopotamus in me that wants to wallow in the mud. And those words seem to accurately capture the paradox of our spiritual condition. And it, it's really true of us. And nowhere is this paradox more evident than in the realm of prayer. When it comes to your personal practice of prayer, which metaphor describes the paradigm of your spiritual life? Is it an eagle soaring free and unhindered or a hippopotamus weighed down and neck deep in the muck of everyday life? Hippopotamus or eagle? I guess I really don't have to tell you what Jesus would like us to be. It's true, isn't it? What ought to be some of the greatest priorities in the Christian life are among some of those that are most neglected. The tyranny of the urgent assaults us on a daily basis. The momentary appeal of what seems important is all-consuming, leaving us to look back in empty desperation at those truly important things that are occupying a spot on the shelf that never get attended to. Let me ask you some probing questions a little bit this morning before we really get into the text. Concerning what things take the highest priority in your life? A few probing questions that have penetrated and sometimes paralyzed my own soul. So be honest with yourself this morning as I present these. Which of these things disturb you more? A soul lost to eternity or a scratch on your new car? Missing a worship service or missing a game? A sermon 10 minutes too long or a lunch a half hour late? church not growing or your checkbook shrinking, your Bible left unopened or Facebook left unchecked, missing your small group Bible study or missing your favorite TV program, what bothers you more? The millions who do not know Christ or your inability to keep your social status on a par with your neighbors? The cry of the multitude for bread or your desire for another piece of cake? Which bothers you most? A missed text message or a missed opportunity for prayer? Are we as individuals or as a community of Christians so enamored with places to go and things to do and people to deal with that we cannot make time for what God says should be a priority in our life and priority in the church. Prayer is an easy thing to skip over, isn't it? Especially in the corporate sense. 
The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon over 127 years ago, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. If, a ch if God be near a church, he said, it must pray. If he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer. Slothfulness. That's an ugly word. If we were honest with ourselves, we'd have to admit that corporately at least, we have become somewhat negligent, if not slothful, in this area of prayer. Are we in danger of becoming a church with an absentee God, as Spurgeon alluded to? You may say, well, I'm just so busy. Well, yeah, I know, everybody's busy, right? It's become the cultural mantra. But a busy life that does not include the busyness of prayer strangles our hearts. Wayne Muller writes in his book, um, actually Mark Buchanan quotes him in his book, Sabbath, Restoring the Sacred Rhythm of Rest. He says, I have visited large offices of wealthy donors, the crowded rooms of social service agencies, and the small houses of the poorest families. Remarkably, within this mosaic, there is a universal refrain. I am so busy. It does not seem to matter if people I speak with are doctors or daycare workers or shopkeepers or social workers or parents or teachers or nurses or lawyers or students or therapists, community activists or cooks. Whether they are Hispanic or Native American, Caucasian or black, the more their lives speed up, the more they feel hurt, frightened, and isolated. He says, despite their good hearts and equally good intentions, their work in the world rarely feels light, pleasant, or healing. Instead, as it all piles endlessly upon itself, the whole experience of being alive begins to melt into one enormous obligation. You feel that? And it becomes the standard greeting everywhere you go. I am so busy. And Mark Buchanan says, and something dies in us. Too much work, the British used to say, makes Jack a dull boy. But it's worse than that, Buchanan writes. It numbs Jack, it parches Jack, it hardens Jack, it kills his heart. And the incontestable reality is that for the most part, we're not busy with God's work. We're just busy. Busy in and of itself, by the way, is not bad. Jesus was busy. He worked hard at preaching and teaching and healing and clearing out temples and making his way to the cross. He was very, very busy. Yet somehow he found the time, rather he made the time to pray in all of that busyness. Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16 say this, but the news about him was spreading even further and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. And the principle is pretty obvious. If we're too busy to pray, then we're way too busy. 
The busier you get, the more you need to take time out to pray. Prayer must be a matter of priority. In today's text that we're going to look at, the Apostle Paul emphatically reminds us of the importance of prayer in the life of the church. The prevailing practice of prayer will bring vitality and fruitfulness to a church, to this church, to any church that is willing to stop and say something to this effect. I've had enough of doing ministry without God's clear direction. I'm tired of doing things according to our own plan, in our strength, by my schedule. I want to know God's leading. I want to see God's power at work. I want to feel his loving presence in every area of the church's life. I believe our church practices good, healthy, sound theology. But to be honest, I think we could use some work in this area of neology. The practice of prayer should be a priority in the church. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Follow along with me as I read the first seven verses. Very familiar passage. Paul writes to Timothy, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's unpack this a minute. First of all, Paul starts out with, first of all, Underline that. He doesn't mean first on a list of 20 or so things to do because he never gets to second, third, or fourth, or fifth, right? What he means is of primary importance. It's a priority. It's top priority, Paul says. It must be if the church is to live. Prayer is to the church as oxygen is to the brain or breath is to the lungs. Without it, the organism dies, period. The church will die on its feet, friends, if it is not living on its knees, so the saying goes. Paul says the practice of prayer should be a priority in the church, and he goes on to explain a few aspects of that practice. And the first one is this. Prayer needs to be comprehensive in its scope. Comprehensive. Look at verse 1 again. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made. Paul uses four words to describe the different aspects of prayer that we're supposed to be occupied with. He uses the first word, entreaties. If you have a King James Version, it says supplications. The NIV says requests. 
The original word literally means to be deprived of, in need of, and it expresses our full dependence upon God for the specific needs of what we are keenly aware of. Personal sicknesses, financial burdens, trials, salvation for people, direction for ministry, healing, etc., etc. When was the last time that you remember getting down on your knees with a group of people from this body and pouring your heart out to Christ? Calling out to God together for someone's individual needs. I know it happens. I'm just posing the rhetorical question, though, for you individually and me. How, how often, how's, when was the last time you did that with a group of people and having them return the gift by praying for your needs? That's what Paul's getting at when he says entreaties. The second word he, said, he uses is the word prayers. This is simply a general reference to prayer or communion with God. It's always used, by the way, in reference to addressing God. Always in the Scripture. Always. You understand what that means? God is the only one to whom we should pray in the Scriptures. I'm going to make some enemies here this morning. I feel I can do this because this is my background. We don't pray to other saints, dead relatives or friends, or to the apostles or even to Mary. Nowhere in the Bible is there ever a call for us to pray to anyone except for God alone. Every time the word prayers is used in the Scriptures, it has to do with praying to God. The word literally means to take hold on God. That's important, isn't it? Then he uses the, prayer, the word intercessions. Intercessions or petitions refers to meeting again, meeting with God. It implies our open and intimate access to God with childlike confidence. It's frank, it's free, it's familiar conversation with the Almighty. We have that opportunity. I never knew that before I came to Christ. We can have dialogue with God, and that means there's a listening part, right? You gotta listen. I caught myself doing it again this week. Okay, God, I'm going to really buckle down here this morning, blah, 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 blah. Here comes the list. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit says to me, would you just listen? <laughs> and lest we forget, Paul uses a fourth term. What is it? What is it? Thanksgivings. It's an essential part of our conversation with God. It's an attitude of thanksgiving. Attitude of gratitude, right? Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 says this. Paul writes, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, I don't think Paul was trying to draw hard and fast distinctions between these four words that he used here in 1 Timothy as much as he was urging us to be involved in every aspect of prayer for every person. Notice what he says. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of who? All men, everyone. The message puts it in a real good perspective. 
The first thing I want you to do is pray. Pray every way you know how for everyone you know. Wow. You have time for that? I'm too busy. But it works. It works. In his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, Pastor Jim Simbola documents the incredible history of the Brooklyn Tabernacle in the inner city of New York through the ministry of powerful prayer. Untrained for ministry, he and his wife Carol were burning themselves out working in the midst of, quote, people dying on every side, overdosing from heroin, consumed by materialism and all the rest, unquote. Exhausted and discouraged, an ailing, insecure man, Jim, the pastor, cried out to God in desperation, and deep within his spirit, he sensed God speaking to him these words. Jim, if you and your wife will lead my people to pray and call upon my name, you will never lack for something fresh to preach. I will supply all the money that's needed both for the church and for your family, and you will never have a building large enough to contain the crowds that I will send in response. And the rest is history. If you know anything about Brooklyn Tabernacle, the Brooklyn Tabernacle is now world-renowned for its prayer ministry, which has led thousands and thousands of people to Christ. And here is a church which has made prayer a priority and continues today to reap an incredible harvest as they sit and watch God's powerful hand at work. They truly believe what Oswald Chambers said so profoundly years ago when he said, prayer doesn't equip us for greater works, prayer is the greater work. Do we believe that? It's been said that Satan laughs at our toiling, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. How much fear and trembling are we instigating in our enemy? Prayer that is comprehensive in its scope does that. It injects fear into the heart of our enemy. Secondly, Paul says prayer, it's not just universal or comprehensive in its scope, but it must be impartial in its approach. Now, this is, this is really important. Again, verses 1 and 2, I urge that all these things, prior, the primary importance, all these prayers be made on behalf of all men, now look at verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority. It encompasses all men in general, first of all, we are to pray for all men, everyone, regardless of race, creed, social status, position, spiritual status, whatever. The church is to be an equal opportunity employer of prayer. It's got to go beyond just our four walls, four walls here. How often, for example, do we intercede for the needs of the community? You ever pray for the people on your school board, select board, or town office staff? You pray for your law enforcement people in your local community? Or do you just complain about the job they're doing? Do you pray for the spiritual well-being of the fire chief, the principal of the school, the guy that drives the town plow, your neighbors, the people of Baltimore, Nepal, ISIS? 
You say, why waste my already overtaxed time, my busy schedule, praying for people who may have no interest in God whatsoever? Why should I waste my time doing that? Let me ask you a question. Aren't you glad someone wasted their time praying for you before you came to know Christ? How long? It may take a long time for us to see the results of our prayers. We know that from experience. But we need to learn the concept of perseverance or prevailing in prayer. Amen? Luke 18.1, Jesus told his disciples a, a parable to show them that at all times we should pray and not lose heart. Now, we're too quick to give up if we don't see immediate results. A good test of a heart truly dedicated to prayer is how long it will hang in there waiting for the answers to come. What if our prayer appears unanswered? What if our pain is unrelieved? Shall we place a time limit on God? An expiration date on our prayers? In the weeks and months after I finally did come to know Christ, I was shocked, totally shocked at the amount of people that told me that they were praying for me. I didn't even know these people a lot of times. People I had never met in my life. I remember one such person became part of this church for a time until she moved. She persevered in prayer for my salvation for a time I was her pastor after that. Not only does impartial prayer encompass all men and women in general, but it also includes those in authority in specific. Again, verse 2, the first part for kings and for all who are in authority. The biblical injunction here is that we pray continually for those who are in authority over us, whether they are hostile to Christianity or not. And that's another probing question. Do we make a habit of praying for those people? The fact is, biblically speaking, no one has ever gotten into public office without God's consent. No one ever, right? No Supreme Court justice, no senator, no president, not even a town manager in the smallest town in the, in the state of Maine has gotten to where he or she is apart from the sovereign knowledge of God. You believe that? Not one of them. Therefore, therefore, make the application now, it can only benefit us if we constantly hold them before the Father in prayer. Amen? Think about who was in charge when Paul wrote this letter. Do your biblical, geographical, historical, cultural context study, right? It was the Roman Emperor Nero. He was a cruel, vicious hater of God who used Christians as human torches to light his garden parties. That's who was in power when Paul wrote this. Why would Paul ever exhort Timothy and the church at Ephesus to pray for that guy? For the same reason we should pray for our political leaders today. Because God has ordained government for the general good and establishes leaders in their positions, we must hold them in healthy respect because it's God that allowed them to be there, even if those who fill those seats are evil people. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Then he is ultimately in control of the government, isn't he? Romans 13, 1. 
Our tendency is not to pray, it's to complain. It's to complain about our leaders rather than pray for our leaders. And we see it all over Facebook. I I very rarely see a Facebook post with someone's prayer for our political leaders. All I see is a bunch of junk mocking them, disrespecting them, acting pretty much like non-Christians toward them. I get letters from all kinds of ministries and coalition groups decrying the fact that the government is stripping Christianity of its freedoms to pray and speak publicly for Jesus in the public square. And we must stand boldly for our rights as Christians before every last vestige of true spirituality is removed from our midst. You get those? But you know what? It's very rare when I get a letter from one of these organizations decrying the fact that there is very little or no prayer happening in the church of Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's no prayer in school. Is there prayer in church? That's the question. One writer hit the mark when he said, what does it say about our churches today that God birthed the church in a prayer meeting and prayer meetings today are almost extinct? And, and, you know, I'm preaching right here at this place, me. That should be enough motivation to stop protesting the state until our own hearts break in repentance, until we get our own act together, shouldn't it? The Bible teaches that we affect change in people's hearts more by living godly lives and proclaiming godly truth with gentleness and respect than by fighting for godly causes with verbal assaults and arrogant tirades. I've been embarrassed, ashamed, and equally disgusted by some of those posts that I read on Facebook by professing Christians regarding our public officials. Seriously, does anyone take the scriptural exhortations into account before they post things? Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says this, remind the people, and that's what I'm doing to you right now, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good, here it is, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Just in case you didn't get that, let me read it again. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Now, how about 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17? Peter writes, For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether at the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free. You get that? You're free. You are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. That's what Peter said. Now, to be sure, when authorities overstep the boundaries of God's revealed will, then obviously we must disobey 
the authorities and obey God rather than men, right? But we must also be prepared to suffer those earthly consequences for that disobedience, shouldn't we? As one writer suggests, let's not play games with ourselves. Let's not divert attention away from the weak prayer life of our own churches. In Acts chapter 4, when the apostles were unjustly arrested, unjustly arrested, imprisoned and threatened, they didn't call for a protest. They didn't reach for some political leverage. Instead, they headed for a prayer meeting. Soon the place was vibrating with the power of the Holy Spirit. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Let me just read you a couple of verses about what that writer is suggesting. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. The apostles had been arrested because they'd healed somebody. Questioned and threatened. They said, stop speaking in this name of Christ. Just stop it. Don't do it anymore. When they had been released, it says in verse 23, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord, and they began to pray. And then from verses 24 to 30 is the prayer. And then in verse 31, it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Even though the Sanhedrin had said, Stop preaching, they went to prayer. God said, Go ahead and preach. Filled them with the Holy Spirit, and they went out and preached in boldness. Homer Kent points out, prayer for those who mistreat us is still the finest safeguard against the sin of hatred. It's very difficult to stop ourselves from hating those who oppress us and persecute us or try to enact laws that will strip us of our freedom to preach the gospel in the public square. But the only way that we can safeguard ourselves against hating those people is to pray for them. And that's what Jesus said. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Right? Prayer is our ultimate resource when all seems helpless. Prayer became the apostles' instinctive response. When they were in trouble, they prayed. When they were intimidated, they prayed. When they were persecuted, prayer was the immediate reaction. What is our default? Prayer must be comprehensive in its scope, Paul says, impartial in its approach, and we must believe that prayer is going to have practical results. Verse 2, again, 1 Timothy, it says, We pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is the practical end of praying for our authorities so that we may live quiet and peaceful lives. Notice in godliness and dignity. That's the qualifying factor. In godliness and dignity. If we busied ourselves with prayer more frequently than protest, we might receive more pe be received more peacefully by the world. You think? Which do you think is going to produce more results? 
Petitioning the government or petitioning the hand of God that moves the government? I'm not saying that protests are all bad. I'm just saying, what's your priority? Which do you run to for your means of support? Protests are okay if we have the right to do that peacefully with godliness and dignity. I'm not saying that it's not. And sometimes it gets things done. God may use that as a means to move the government. But folks, don't put all your eggs in the basket of that. God says, of first priority, pray. Let him lead you to do what needs to be done then. The hand of God is what ultimately shifts the tide of public opinion, and prayer is what moves the hand of God. Proverbs chapter 16, 7 says very clearly, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. It's a general rule. That's the principle. Yet it's not a blanket guarantee because you need to... You need to realize the flip side of it, too. Remember the other half of the truth of living for Jesus Christ in 2 Timothy 3.12, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So how can we pray for those in authority? Well, in the bulletin, I gave you a little card, a little bookmark in there. It has 30 ways that you can pray for those in authority. That's a, that's a place to begin, right? And they're all supported by Scripture. And the purpose, remember, is so that we can live quiet and tranquil lives, free from outward and inward disturbances, which opens the way for the unhindered spread of the gospel as we live godly lives and respectful lives before God and the world. And that's the whole point, isn't it? Isn't the whole point that we introduce people to Jesus Christ and help them to become his committed followers? Is that the point? What is the mission of the church? Is it to guarantee freedom in the United States for all Americans? That's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to introduce people to Jesus and to help them to become his committed followers, whether we do it in freedom or we do it under an oppressive authority. That's the mission. Don't lose sight of the mission. Number four, Paul says that Prayer is preferable in the sight of God. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Says it pretty clearly there, doesn't it? Why? Why is prayer preferable in the eyes of God? Because God desires all people to be saved, it says in verse 4. That all of his creation might come to know and experience salvation. He doesn't want a single person to miss the boat. But notice what the text does not say. It doesn't say, it says that he desires all men and women to be saved, not that he will save all men and women. So let's not get into universalist doctrine here. People who refuse to personally accept the truth about Jesus Christ by faith, his vicarious death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and his resurrection and, for, and, and subsequent appearances are not saved, no matter how religious their activity or spiritual their vocabulary. They must come to Christ by faith. And Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for all to do that, but it's only efficient for those who actually do that. Sufficient for all, efficient for those who come. 
That's precisely why God desires all people to come to the knowledge of the truth, it says in verse 4, because he desires all men to be saved. And you can't be saved without knowledge of the truth. Amen? Friends, we need to desperately pray for people to come to the full and experiential knowledge of the truth about Jesus Christ, that he is the way and the truth and the life. And that not one single solitary person is going to gain access to the presence of God apart from Jesus. Does that stir anyone's heart at all? Thursday is the National Day of Prayer. We will be holding a prayer gathering here at 6.30 on, on Wednesday. Will you come and pray? Will you come for an hour and pray for our country and for those in authority? Because if, well, if you cannot come, will you come commit some time on your own then to pray specifically for our own personal repentance that we may impact our nation by our own example? We're going to send some clipboards around for you right now so that you can sign up for times to pray, kind of like we did at Easter time for this prayer vigil. We still want you to sign up and we still want you to come to the prayer meeting if you would. Isn't there somebody in your life Forget about the government. Isn't there somebody in your life that you long to see come to Christ? Somebody that you're praying for. If there isn't, well, that's another problem I need to address in another sermon. We all ought to have people we're praying for to come to Christ, right? Do you desire it enough to pray continually for them? You know, we suffer from sort of this sort of spiritual numbing, this prayer paralysis, and, and I suffer from it just as well as you. We want to pray, but we just can't seem to make ourselves do it enough. And there are times, I believe, when God is just waiting for our, for it to answer our prayers. He just wants us to pray, and He'll answer. And you know what? It's a powerful thing when He does, isn't it? A very powerful thing. About 16 years ago, I attended a talk given by author Lee Strobel. At that time, he hadn't written all the books that he's written now. But it was a talk on how to minister to seekers in the new millennium. In it, he began by entertaining the question, what would Jesus do if he lived in my house? In that talk, his first point highlighted the, the importance of prayer. Lee suggested that Jesus would do the following. Before talking to his neighbor about his heavenly father, he would talk to his heavenly father about his neighbor. Right? Maybe we should employ that in every area of our life. Before we start talking to our government officials about our Heavenly Father, maybe we better start talking to our Heavenly Father about them first to prepare the ground. In other words, he would pray for his neighbor consistently, fervently, and specifically. Lee then shared something with us that the Korean church had used as a tool for developing this discipline of consistent, fervent, and specific prayer for the unsaved, which I brought home from that talk 
and implemented in an evangelism course I was teaching right here at the, at the church. Some of you probably remember this thing. You may even still have the cards. It's called the 111 concept. Remember that? Anybody remember that? Raise your hand if you remember that. We've got a whole new church here now. That's why I can preach this stuff, and it's not even redundant for you guys. It's all new for you, right? So this is good and exciting. The 111 concept. Get it, get it in your head. You commit to pray for one person for one minute at one o'clock. Every day. Every single day. No end. Okay? I made up some fancy reminder cards that looked kind of like what's behind me. And I gave them to people, laminated them to carry and challenged the class to pray. I committed myself to the task as well. Each of us in the course had developed this thing called an impact list of people that we wanted to impact with the gospel. With the names of people, we felt burdened for salvation on that list. And I immediately began praying for one specific couple to come to know the Lord. And over the course of the next eight months, God involved them in some very intense divine appointments in their life. Some of those I was part of, some of them I wasn't. And eventually, they gave their lives to Christ. One-minute prayers for one specific thing every day at 1 o'clock. It works. It's just one mere example of something that you can discipline yourself to do. I did it for years. In fact, I even set my watch to beep every day at 1 o'clock. It got to the point that when my watch beeped, my kids knew, Dad's going to pray now. And this is a very difficult thing for me to say to you right now. But I stopped doing it. Half of it was because I couldn't hear the beep of my watch anymore. <laughs> Everybody else around me could hear it, but I couldn't. But I should have done something else. I mean, I got a phone that beeps way louder than my watch ever thought of. That's always on my person. Somewhere along the journey, and somehow in the journey, I just, it just got absorbed into the busyness of my life and ministry, and I stopped doing it. And that's wrong. It's dreadfully wrong. And I was convicted by that this week. So now I'm going to set my iPad and my watch and my phone, and I got to change this. Obviously, I have to pray more than one minute every day for one person, but that's just one thing that you can always do. Listen, if you do nothing else, commit to pray for at least one person at one o'clock for one minute every single day. And there is one primary reason why. Because Paul says, fifthly, prayer is essential to the spread of the faith. Look at verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So here's another one, one, one to remember. It's right here in the text. There is one God, verse 5, right? 
Here is the central truth of the whole Old Testament. There is one God and one God alone. Therefore, it follows that if there is only one God, then he is the God of all, right? If the desire of this God is that all men and women come to salvation, then as his children, it should also be our desire, shouldn't it? And so we should pray to that end. Number two, one, is that there is one mediator. There is one God, there is one mediator. The concept of the one mediator is as central to the New Testament Christian as the one God concept was to the Old Testament Jew. The one mediator is the man, Jesus Christ, is identified here. He is the one who has redeemed us and ransomed us through his death on the cross. He is the one who has reserved eternal life for us by his resurrection from the dead. He has broken down the wall that separates God and men and women. If there is only one mediator, then he is the one that must be presented to all the people. And that is the purpose for which Paul was appointed and the motivation which drives us to pray, according to this text. There is only one God, there is only one mediator, and therefore there is only one conclusion. Verse 8, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. The work of God can only be carried on by the power of God. Amen? We must pray. We will have no power unless we do. God is not impressed with high attendance figures in the church. He's not impressed with new buildings or the smell of fresh paint. The angels in heaven aren't talking about how good the new ladies' bathrooms look or the, how, how incredible the new parking lot will be, especially if it's paved, right? They're not talking about that. They could care less about that. Friends, if we aren't developing a climate of prayer and seeking to cultivate hearts that consistently call out to God on a regular basis, what good is all that anyway? What does it matter how many people this place can hold? Because without a commitment to prayer, it's just a matter of time before the seats are empty anyways. Right? This past week, some of you that are friends with me on Facebook probably know this is it's coming. A girl that is now married and has children of her own but used to attend here many years ago and she was only about that high when she was coming here. I'm friends with her on Facebook. And uh, this past Wednesday, she posted something online and you'll see it behind me. It was a little prayer card from the 1990s from this church. She put that on there and she wrote, you know you haven't cleaned out in a while when you find a Fayette Baptist church prayer card from the 90s. And then she wrote, it's not too late to get it in the basket, is it, Uncle Russ? She used to call me Uncle Russ. And my response to her is, no, my dear, it is never, ever too late to start praying. Never. My friends, prayer works. Even one-minute prayers if they're consistent, fervent, and specific. If one-minute consistency can reap souls for Jesus Christ, think of what a group of people praying every hour for our nation could do. Let's pray. Father, it's such a privilege to come to you in prayer. Forgive me, Lord God, and forgive us for just letting it slide by. 
Teach us to pray, Lord. Teach us to pray in such a way that maybe it doesn't even have to always be setting aside an hour, but as we go through our day, every single breath we take, may it be a reminder of our, of our heart's desire to communicate with you. Let us set aside those specific times to pray individually and quietly and in solitude, and also set aside times to pray corporately with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to pray one-minute prayers or two-minute prayers or one-hour prayers, whatever it may be. May we discipline ourselves, Lord God, so our every waking moment, and even when we dream, when we're asleep, becomes a, a heartfelt prayer and an outcry to you that we might have such a close connection with you that nothing, nothing could stop us from fulfilling your will. We love you, Lord. We know you love us. That's not even a question. And so we reach out to you now and we ask you, Lord God, to guide us in this. For the sake of your name, until we die or until you come, may it be our practice. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.